Welcome to the teaching ministry of Walt East, lead chaplain at Sky Valley Chapel. We hope this teaching will serve as a practical guide for your daily walk as a Christ follower. We encourage you to follow along with your Bible and life notes, which can be found in the podcast show notes or on our website at svmin.com. He did not meet their expectations as a rabbi, much less their expectations of the Messiah. You see, they were looking for the wrong kind of Messiah or or deliverer. In their mind, they thought God had promised that one was going to come and restore their nation to its previous glory. They thought that one was going to come to, to kick Roman butt, to kick the oppressors out of their land. And they were certain that the deliverer would reinstitute the good old days, which frankly, had you been there, they weren't really good old days. But when Jesus shows up, Jesus is completely different. He confused everybody because he didn't go back to the good old days. He exposed the the, the hypocrisy and the emptiness that existed in the good old days. He wasn't about restoring the nation to its glory. He was about restoring a kingdom, about ushering a new kingdom of a completely different type that would bring glory to God the Father. And he wasn't talking about deliver them from Rome. He was talking about delivering them from sin. So people were pretty much confused across the board. The regular folks did not know what to make of him because he wasn't like the other religious leaders. And the religious leaders, they were incensed. They were incensed. They were just mad. They were incensed because as he pulled away and didn't honor their traditions, layers and layers and layers of stuff that they had built around God's commands, he was essentially pulling the rug right out from everything they stood on. Now, we've seen that one of the plans of, of Mark as he, as, he, as he writes this book, as we've been studying the past six, seven weeks, these are the recollections of, of Peter the Apostle, and Mark's writing them down. One of the things he does is he, he walks us through. And we keep talking about that, that at some point, if you read through the book of Mark, and I encourage you, if you haven't already, read through it, straight through. It takes about 53 to 53 minutes, maybe an hour and three, depending on how fast a reader you are. But I challenge you, you cannot read through this book without being confronted with the question of who is this man? Is he Savior? Is he the Lord? Is he King of Kings? Or is he a fraud? Is he worthy to be followed at all costs? Or is he worthy to be taken away and hung on a cross? And we've seen that even in these first two chapters. Today we come to a passage that talks about the people's confusion with the way that Jesus dealt with the religious rituals of that day. And it's a very simple passage. They come up to Jesus and some folks say to him, you know, why is it that your disciples, your followers, why don't they fast on a regular basis the same way that John the Baptist's followers do and and the Pharisees fast? Why don't yours do that? And Jesus says, well, it makes no sense. Why in the world would they fast? There'll come a time when they do need to fast, but not now. And then he, with a, with a little bit of, of intrigue, lays out a, a little word picture, a metaphor that only later begins to make sense to them. But essentially what he's saying is this. 
He says, my kingdom is completely different than anything you've ever known or anything that you think that it's going to be. It's not going to be able to be put into the old forms and the old traditions and the old boxes that you're comfortable with. It's a completely different thing, he's saying. Now, I want you to see this passage, and so I invite you to take your life notes, that half sheet of paper that was given to you as you came in. Hopefully you've got it. If you don't have something to write with, raise your hand, and Joe will bring you, bring you a pen. But take your life notes, and, and while you're getting them out, I just want to welcome everybody who's listening on the podcast. So those that are listening right now on the podcast, we welcome you, and, and we look forward to the time that you can be here in person with us here at Sky Valley. So Mark chapter 2, we're going to pick up at verse 18. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? I mean, he's saying, he's saying I mean, it's, it's, a, it's like a wedding party. It makes no sense that this would be a time of, of fasting and mourning. He says, they cannot so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. You know, he's going to leave. This is a foreshadowing of that. He says, and on that day, they will fast. Why? Because there will be times of sorrow. There will be times of persecution. There will be, be difficulties that will come. And then he's going to make the first of what throughout the book of Mark are, are going to be many cryptic insights into the fact that his kingdom is completely different than what they expect. He says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. So, so you've, you've, you've got a piece of, a, a piece of garment, something that, that's torn, that, that, that's already shrunk. You don't take an unshrunk patch and put it on there. You shrink the patch before you do, so that whenever you wash it again, it doesn't tear. And then he, he gives another example from, from their everyday lives. He says, and no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. Why? Because the old wineskin has already been stretched by the wine that was originally put in it, and it fermented, and it stretched that wineskin. And so for a simple reason, you don't put new wine again into those because it's going to burst, you're going to lose your wineskin, and you're going to ruin your wine. He's saying, my kingdom can't be held by your old wineskins. It's different from your concepts and, and what you think about God's kingdom. Now that's the passage, and I want us to understand it. In order to understand it, we need to step back and we, we need to understand the backstory of, and that is, what's going on with this fasting question? Because fasting isn't necessarily a particularly big deal in our culture today. I mean, you've probably seen and heard stuff of the past couple of years about diet fads are always, are always big, right? Any of us other than me always trying to lose weight? And, and now this thing, intermittent fasting has, has come up, and, and that's supposed to be the way now to lose weight, and you've got to figure out because of your body type or whatever it is, you know, whichever day you were born on, I don't know what they do, how you figure out what intermittent fast you need to do. But, but we don't, we don't, celebrate or we don't use fasting as a spiritual discipline the way that they're talking about here in Jesus' time. So we're going to step back and we're going to, we're going to look at this. I'm going to fill you in with some things that were kind of their mindset during the time. Then we're going to take a quick look at what the Bible said in the Old Testament about fasting. 
And then we're going to look at the New Testament, what it says about him. And then in the end, we're going to ask the, the, the big question, the big question, so what? How, what is it, how does that apply to our lives? How does that apply to your life and my life here in the 21st century? And what you're going to see is you're going to find some life principles that I believe are important that will tell us about God, about ourselves, about he expects, about what we can expect from him, and how re he responds to us. So let's take a step back and look at this backstory. So take your life notes. And the first thing I want to talk about is fasting in the Old Testament was a response, not a ritual. Fasting in the Old Testament was a response, not a ritual. From Genesis to Malachi, whenever fasting is mentioned, it's always a response, not a religious ritual. It's not a, a discipline that, that people would do. There's 613 commands in the Old Testament. Ten of them we know as the ten, what? Commandments. We know as the Ten Commandments. And then there's 603 others. And not one of these commands is a command to fast regularly. There's one little statement that the Jews were to deny themselves one day a year on the Day of Atonement. But even that passage was not a command to fast. It might include fasting, but there's no command to fast in the Old Testament. It was always a response it was always a response to a crisis, or maybe it was a response to, to mourning, to a loss, or it may have been a response in regard to repentance, and so one would, one would fast. I've got a series of verses listed in your, in your life notes there, and you can check most of those out later this week, but, but just one there for, um, I'm going to look at a couple, but the first one I want you to look at, 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel 12, 16 through 18, this is after David had the affair with Bathsheba. And now a child is going to be born. Bathsheba's pregnant. There's going to be a child born of that union. And God comes and he says, there's a, there's a whole lot of things going to that are going to happen because of what you've done. And one of those things is that this child is going to die. Well, David immediately begins to fast and pray before the Lord that, that somehow that would not happen. And he's completely distraught. And he's so distraught that, that the servants and the, and the royal court, they're, they're concerned about him. They're very, very concerned about him. And when the child does die, they don't know how to tell him because they think king's going to do something crazy. He's going to go wacko on us. But they finally do tell him. And what does he do? He gets up, he bathes, and then he eats. And they're like, whoa, what's up with this? They're confused. And so he says, well, while the child was still alive, I fasted and I prayed because perhaps the Lord would change what he had declared would happen. But now that the child is dead, he's not going to come back to me, but I will go to him. I need to move on with my life is basically what David was saying. Another passage that I have listed in your life notes is, is from the book of Esther. In the book of Esther, the Jews are in, in captivity in, in Persia. They're, they're there because of their sin. They're there for a period of, of judgment. God uh, allowed them to be taken there. And then they hear, the Jews in Persia hear that there's going to be a, a, a genocide, that, that there's plans to just basically wipe out all the Jews in Persia. And so they fast and they pray to the Lord. Old Testament fasting is always a response, never a ritual, to extreme circumstances. Now, fasting in the days of Jesus, centuries later, by then it had changed. By then, fasting had become a religious ritual, a spiritual discipline. 
It was no longer just a response to, to heartache or a response to disaster um, or despair at a critical time or situation in your life. It was something that the hyper-spiritual did, the, the really good religious people did, and there was a lot of pride going on with this. The Pharisees who eventually became the enemies of Jesus were very proud that they fasted twice a week. They fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, and, and that's how Taco Tuesday, no, that's not true. Um, <laughs> They, they fasted two days a week, and they were proud of them fasting. And Jesus tells a story in, in Luke 18 where two people are going in to pray. And he says that one of them is a tax collector, much like Levi that, that we met a couple weeks ago. Like Levi, this guy was repentant. And the guy basically, he prostrated himself before the Lord and said, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm, I'm a sinner. And the Lord said, this guy's prayers are answered. But Jesus said the other guy who was a Pharisee, one of these people that, that fasted two days a week, his main characteristic was looking down on other people. He looked down on everybody else. And he comes before the Lord and he says, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a loser like this guy. I'm not like this guy over here. And then he names two disciplines that he does that he's quite proud of. He says, I give a tithe of everything that I receive. Right off the top, 10% to you, Lord. Everything you bless me with, I give some back to you. And then he continues, he says, and I fast twice a week, like he's trying to impress God. And the Lord says, because of his arrogance, his prayer wasn't even heard. The one they thought had no chance of reaching God, the despised tax collector, and we talked quite a bit last week about what it meant to be a tax collector in Israel at that time. You were one of them, you were one of the others. The one that, that they thought had no chance of reaching God reached God. And the one that they thought, wow, this is the epitome of spirituality, his prayers were not heard. You see, a weird thing had happened. What had been a sign of, of brokenness and humility had turned into a source of pride, a thing that you used to, to measure and to show off that you were more spiritual than others. Now, I want to be crystal clear on this. Jesus was not against fasting. Jesus was not against fasting. He fasted himself. You might remember a few weeks ago when we were in the first chapter of, of Mark looking at it. You know, we, we came to the place where Jesus was baptized by John and the Holy Spirit descended as a dove. And the voice from heaven said, this is my son. Listen to him. I'm well pleased with him. And then we're told that the Spirit led him out into the wilderness for 40 days for prayer and fasting. He fasted here to prepare for his great test. Not the cross, but the first test. He was tested by Satan himself there with three temptations in the desert. And there Jesus passed the test at the beginning of his ministry, a test at the beginning of time Adam and Eve had failed because they did not obey God. This prepared Jesus to bring life to you and to me when he would die on our place on the cross. So Jesus fasted, but I want you to catch this. It was not a ritual. It was not as a sign to show his spirituality, how, how spiritual he was. He did it in obedience to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit led him to fast. Now, when it comes to fasting in the early church in, in the New Testament, it's basically exactly what the Old Testament said. It was a response to extreme circumstances. If you read through the, the, the Old Testament after the Gospels, read through there, and you look at the places where fasting is done, it's like the Old Testament. It was a response. There's no command to fast. Again, it's not something bad. It's not something Jesus is against. There's just no command to it. 
it continues as this response. And there's stories in the book of Acts. I've listed some of them on your, on your life notes there. Like, like when the apostle Paul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus after he realizes that Jesus is the Messiah and he comes to faith in Christ, he fasts after that. And when they're making a big, huge decision in the, in the early church there in Jerusalem, because they've got to figure out some things about what the requirements are, you know, do you need to become a Jew before becoming a Christian? Is that the pathway to, to Christ? They fast because they want discernment. They want, to, they want to focus with God there. But it was always in a response to some circumstance rather be, than because God commanded it. So we've taken a little time here at the beginning. We've looked at this passage. We've stepped back to look at the context to understand about the fasting question. But the thing that's begged here is what do we do about it? What do we do with that? Well, all Scripture is given to train us, to instruct us, to teach us about righteousness, about God, and about how we should live. So I want to put that lens on and address this question. In light of what I know about the debate that was going on there in, in Mark chapter 2 about fasting, and in light of what I know about Jesus' response, what does this passage teach me and you about ourselves, about God, about how God responds to us, and what God is looking for from us? So go to the back side of your life notes there. There's a little section that says, so what's the point? The first thing is simply this. We need to understand that God wants obedience we tend to give him rituals. God wants obedience. We tend to give him rituals. The Lord wants our obedience. He wants us to do what he has clearly told us to do. But we tend to, to make those things into little checklists of, of religious rituals and traditions and, 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 our, and, our, and our habits to put stuff around it to make sure we don't even get close to not doing what we're supposed to do. And we tend to think, well, that's all God wants. And if I don't do these things, he's going to be, he's going to be angry with me. But if I do them, I'm, if I just do these things on the checklist, then I'm, then I'm good to go. And we turn these things upside down. And by the way, it's not just the Pharisees that did that. It was done th all throughout the Old Testament. It was done throughout the New Testament. It's been done for 2,000 years. And if we're honest, we tend to do that very same thing today. There's a tendency to think that God has a checklist, and it happens to match our checklist, whatever we or our particular denomination or our particular church fellowship thinks is important. That has to be what God's checklist looks like. Now, I want to be crystal clear again that, that some man-made traditions, some religious rituals can be helpful. And the ones that God in, instructed us, commanded us to do, those definitely are helpful, and we, and we need to do them. Some of them we need to understand. We need to understand what's actually commanded in the Bible. So if God says to do it, would you agree with me that we're supposed to do it? Yes? Okay. But what happens is we think we can do it. We can do these things over here, and then we can otherwise live however we want. We think, oh, it's okay because I've, I've, I've done my checklist. I'm good with God because I've got this, this, and this, and this. But the solution is not to, to get rid of the rituals. The solution is to realize that the rituals are not what it's all about. The rituals aren't what it's all about. If I keep, if I perform the rituals over here, but I don't have obedience, I have nothing. Let me talk about some of the rituals that we kind of use as a checklist to say, well, I'm good with God because I've done this. Let's start with uh, pretending we're in the, in the Old Testament days. God commanded the people to bring sacrifices to the tabernacle and then to the temple. Now, he said, do it daily, do it annually, do it on special occasions. Would, would you call that a religious ritual? 
Yes, that's a religious ritual. He said to do it, and are they commanded by God? Absolutely. Should they have been doing them? Yes. What about the command to have your son circumcised on, on the eighth day? If you were a Jew in the Old Testament, was that a religious ritual? Yeah. Was it commanded by God? Absolutely. What about giving 10% right off the top of whatever God blessed you with, 10% of your increase? You took the first 10%, you gave it to his kingdom. Was that a command? Yes. But we want to ask, you know, we take that and say, well, is it gross or is it net? Is it before? Is it after taxes? Is it only to the local church or chapel or our worship fellowship? And, and does me giving to help my friend, uh, my next door neighbor, does, is that recognized by God as part of my, my tithe, my giving? What about the animal shelter over here? You know, trust me, I've heard all these things. And we get so wrapped around trying to be legalistic. Yes, I said that L word, legalistic about the tithe that we're missing the point on it. God's trying to teach us about stewardship. He's trying to teach us to be thankful to him and try to teach us, you know, because you've heard me say it before, God is just as concerned about the other 90% as he is about the first 10%. It isn't like you can just give 10% off the top to God and then he doesn't care what you do with the other 90%. But we want to, we go through these things and we get wrapped up in these questions. Jesus warned, Matthew chapter 23, Jesus warned, he said, woe to you now, now, I don't think this has the same impact that it would if, if you were back in first century Palestine. If someone comes up to me on the street and says, woe to you. I'm like, dude, where are you from? He's, he's, like, he's like saying, this is very important what I'm getting ready to say. Like, you've been straying into areas that you shouldn't be. You know, this is like a slap in the face. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important parts of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter. He's saying, yeah, you should have still tied, but you shouldn't neglect the former. And things, folks, haven't changed. We still do the same things they were doing. Let's move to the New Testament. If you're, if you're a believer and you get baptized, are you doing a religious ritual? Yes, of course. Is one that Jesus commands us. What about partaking of the Lord's Supper? Is that a religious ritual, a tradition? Yes. Okay, it's commanded in Scripture. Giving off the top, fellowshipping, serving together in the church. All of these are commands that we can find in the New Testament. All of these are rituals. And the problem is not the ritual. The problem is when I trust in the ritual. The problem is when I begin to think that, that God is mad at me if I miss the ritual, but he's good with me when I do the ritual, and then anything else goes as far as in my life. And at that point, God says, no, no, you've got it all wrong. So again, we need to be clear. Even man-made traditions are not all bad. Most of them were started for a very good reason, but when they begin to produce bad fruit, that's the time we need to reevaluate the man-made rituals. When we count on our spiritual traditions and our religious rituals to, to balance out our high-handed sin, something's gone radically wrong. Because our tendency is to go, well, you know, I did this, so it's okay with that. So what happens when we trust in ritual? Well, first off, we play God for a fool. When we trust in rituals, we play God for a fool. When you and I put too much emphasis on the traditions, on the rituals, checking them off and, and living, living like hell the rest of the time, we think it's all balanced out and we play him for the fool. As if he's up there with his little checklist and, and you know, did you do this? Did you do that? Did you do this? And, and then I've got this closet sent over here, Lord. I, I did all this, but you don't know about this, Lord. Well, really? God doesn't know. 
we, we think, oh, he's somehow we can fool him? No. Remember the old sitcom, Leave it to Beaver? There was a character in Leave it to Beaver whose name was Eddie Haskell. And those of you that are younger than me, you can ask some of the older folks about, about Leave it to Beaver. He's on in the late 50s, early 60s. And Eddie Haskell, when he was around Mr. or Mrs. Cleaver, he was the nicest boy. He, whenever he was away from them, though, when he was with Wally and the, other, and the other guys, he wasn't so nice. And you know what? I've run into some Eddie Haskell Christians. Okay? Think that they can kiss up to God in church or chapel or wherever when they're around other Christians, but somehow believe that, you know, when, God, when they're away from those things, away from their Christian friends, or they're away from, from church uh, settings or worship settings, that, that God doesn't see what's going on. Now, in the real world, we can kiss up to people in, in authority, and you may have seen this in the workplace or in, in, in the classroom. You may have had someone that kissed up the boss and, and teacher, and the teacher didn't realize what was going on. But it doesn't work with God. He knows. You can't make a fool of God. And so in our life notes, I've, I've listed 1 Samuel 15. This is one of those stories about King Saul, the first, the first king in Israel. And what happened is King Saul went off in, into battle against one of the enemies of Israel. Samuel was the prophet during that time and told him to go, to go, go into battle there. And, and he, Samuel had given some instructions to, to Saul about what to do after the battle. And he had told him, he said, you're to wipe out all these people that you just conquered. You're to wipe the entire army out, kill every single one of them, kill the king, all their cattle. Everything must be destroyed. And there's a, there's a Hebrew word that's used there, which basically means it's devoted, it's dedicated to God. Well, Saul then did most, most of what God told him to do. But he decided, I'm not going to kill the king. And I'm going to keep some of the best stuff. I mean, why would I let some of this loot go to waste? This is some good stuff. And so he, he doesn't kill everything like Samuel instructed him to do on the Lord's behalf. And so Samuel shows up and says, well, what's up with this? I, I think I hear some sheep bleeding. And those aren't your Israeli sheep. Those are the sheep you were supposed to, supposed to kill. And so Saul has all these kind of excuses. He, we're really good at that, aren't we? Coming up with excuses. Well, well, but, but. We're really good with that. And so then Samuel tells Saul, he says, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? Now let me stop. Did God command burnt offerings? Yes. Did he command sacrifices? Yes. Because that's what Saul was saying. Saul was saying, hey, but I did this. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying? And obeying, obeying. You know, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, there's no value in it when you go through the religious checklist, but your life is not changing in character. And the hard issue that God is trying to do in your life in order to, to make you more conformed to his son, Jesus Christ. There's a second thing, though, that happens as well. We become foolishly arrogant. We become foolishly arrogant. Because there's nothing more stupid than standing in front of God and saying, hey, look at me when we're doing something that he just wants to vomit at. That's, that's foolish arrogance. I want to talk turkey to some of us here now, the, those of us that are, that are high-discipline, high-performing people in most of our lives, and we end up doing the same thing in our spiritual lives, don't we? We're the kind of people who are internally competitive, and we do the best in, in everything that we do. We strive to be the best. And my bet is that when you became a Jesus follower, that that personality trait carried over into your spiritual life as well. 
And so you're the kind of person that goes the extra mile all the time. You're the kind of person that when it comes to, to spiritual disciplines, you do them not just well, but really well. Well, here's what you've got to be cautious of. When the result of running faster and further than other Christians is that you become arrogant and you look down on those who can't keep up with you, then that's not good. That's poisons to your spiritual life. You know, in, in the book of Proverbs, the Lord says there are six things, I, no, seven. There's seven things that, that I hate. And the first one that's mentioned there is this, this phrase that translates to haughty eyes. It basically means a, means a proud or an arrogant look. God says, I hate it when you do that. And I tell you, you know, I, I try to teach my kids to be very selective, very careful about using that word hate. And, and, and you don't use it about people, okay? We don't hate people. But be very careful even other things when you say, I hate something. And when God says, I hate something, that's, that's, pretty, that's pretty ominous. That's pretty, pretty heavy, if you will. And I can't tell you how easy, it is, how easy it is for those of us who are driven, who are more success-oriented or, or more overachievers, it's easy for us to, 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 to go through those disciplines. And instead of producing more obedience, it can produce more pride. And that's what happened with the Pharisees. They became the enemies of Jesus. They didn't start out trying to be the enemies of Jesus or trying to be the enemies of God. They didn't want that. But they knew the Bible, and they knew it better than everybody else, and they knew that they knew it better than everybody else. No one was more dedicated to do everything in the Bible, and then some, then some, they'd added to it. So just to make sure, they put this hedge of protection around God's law. But their hearts were in the wrong place because of pride. If you ever, ever use your spiritual disciplines, your obedience to God's commands, to the rituals as a way of looking down on someone else, that's foolish arrogance. To obey is better than sacrifice. There's no value in checking off the checkboxes more than someone else if you're becoming harsh or cold-hearted or arrogant. There's a third thing that happens, and that is this. We make God angry. Simply, we tick him off. We make God angry. I'm going to show you a verse in just a second from the Old Testament to, to back this up, but let me give you a word picture first. Imagine that I'm that guy that, that falls in love and decides that I want to marry this woman. And I go so over the top in my proposal that it's all over YouTube, it's on Facebook, it's all over all the social media. You know, I give her a ring that's dragging her, her hand down to, the, down to the ground every time she tries to, tries to go out. And, and we have our wedding and, and, the, and the ceremony and the, and the reception is like over the top. All the important people are there and, 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 you know, it's putting on the Ritz like you wouldn't believe. And then on our anniversary and Valentine's Day and all the other stuff, my spouse can tell the best stories about what she got and, and I did the best stuff and all like that. But I also happen to be a porn addict and I've had a couple of affairs on the side and I have a tendency to rage behind closed doors. Is that a good husband? No. You see, that's the kind of what we do spiritually, though. We think God is really good. We give the ring. We put on the party. We tithe. We, we read our Bibles. We do all this stuff. And, and then behind closed doors, we're completely different. And just as it would cause that wife to say, I'm done with you, it's the same way with God. You don't believe me? Look at Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 13. Notice what it says. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Now, did God say to bring offerings? Yes. It's, it's not that the offerings were bad. It's the life that didn't match what they were portraying. He says, your incense is what? Your incense is detestable to me. 
New moons, Sabbaths, convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies, even though he has commanded them. He says, your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul, what? Hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Now, that's the Old Testament things. What about the New Testament things? The Lord could say, stop bringing your meaningless offerings. Your prayers are detestable to me. I hate it when you, when you get baptized just for the sake of show. I hate it when you make a, a show out of communion. What? Well, wait a minute. Didn't you command these things? Yes. I can't stand it when you read your Bible to be seen. Well, that's essentially what he's saying. He's saying when the ritual becomes the thing that we bank on, instead of a path to, be, to help us become more obedient, everything is broken. And we have played God for the fool. We become foolishly arrogant, and we actually make him angry. At the end of the day, the only proof that I really love God, know God, and am serving God is obedience. The Bible's quite clear on that. 1 John 2, 3 says, We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. And Jesus said in John 14, If you love me, you will obey me. You want to show how you love me, Jesus says? Well, then obey me. Don't check how many you know, good attendance or perfect attendance pins you have from Sunday school. Don't check how many times you've been in church or chapel. Don't, don't look at your bank account, how much you've written to, to charities. If you love me, obey me. Now, this leads to a second life principle that jumps out at me from this passage, and that is this. God cares about the fruit. We tend to focus on the watering schedule. God cares about the fruit. We tend to focus on the watering schedule. It's just our human nature. And I don't want to get mad at the Old Testament or the New Testament guys because they're no different than we are today. Our human nature is to trade simple obedience for a checklist of disciplines and rituals. And to have some closet in our area and say, well, someday I'll get to that. Someday I'll tell God, okay, you can clean this closet out. But right now, that's, that's not for you. And then I think that I'm all balanced out because I read my Bible or because I've got a good theology or because I show up at worship every week and, or because I lead a Bible study or I attend a Bible study because I, 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 and you can fill in the blank with whatever you will. And what God is saying is no, to obey is better than sacrifice. Sacrifice is a good thing, but it's worthless without obedience. We often focus on the watering schedule, all the little things that people tell us that we, that we have to do to have a good spiritual life, a good marriage, or the little things that we need to do to have good kids. And at the end of the day, those are simply tools. Those are tools. And we can do all those things, but if we aren't doing them in the right spirit, if we aren't doing them the, for the right reasons, if we're focusing on the, only on the tools, our life can be going to hell in a handbasket. We won't have a good marriage. We won't have good kids. Our spiritual walk will be dead. At the end of the day, it isn't whether or not you do those things that's important. It's how is your marriage? How is your walk with the Lord? How are your kids? But we like the watering schedule. So what's the fruit that God wants? What is God looking for? Well, I'm gonna, let's get real practical here just for a few minutes. And I want to go over a few things of the fruit that God is looking for. And uh, three of them come from the book of Micah. I've got that listed in your, in your life notes. The other one comes from 1 Corinthians 13. But the first one, number one, is justice. Justice. Now, we hear a lot of words about justice over the past couple, couple years. 
When God looks at my spiritual disciplines, my ritual, my participating in the Lord's Supper, my baptism, my Bible reading, whatever, he's wanting that to produce justice. He wants me to grow in justice. Now, now what is justice? Because we hear this word thrown around quite a bit. It's simply caring about the rights of others. Another word that could be used, but it could be misused as well, is the word fairness. We live in this weird time and place, this, this global village where so, uh, social media allows everyone to bring every injustice or perceived injustice to us. And man, you can jump on so many bandwagons that you don't have a second, a minute, or, or a penny left. And I want you to understand that God is more worried about your heart. He's more worried about what you're doing where you are locally than about some program someone else is trying to put out in front of you and trying to get you impassioned about. He's more worried about what you and I are doing in our neighborhood, in our workplace, with our next door neighbors, with our neighbors two and three doors down from us. He says, when you're becoming the people I want you to become, you're going to be the people that are known that stand out for justice. The second thing God wants is mercy. He wants you and me to be growing in our mercy. Now, mercy is simply being quick to forgive and real practically to, to overlook. When we say God is, is merciful or, or we cry out to God, God, forgive me, what we're wanting him to do is overlook our transgressions, our sin. Don't give me what I deserve. But are we willing to do the same thing with other people? Are we willing to show mercy to them? So if I'm growing in my mercy, I'm not going to give you what you deserve necessarily. I'm going to give you better than you deserve. And the opposite of mercy is that person that says, I'm going to get even. You're never going to hurt me again. I'm going to make sure that you won't even know where it's coming. You ever, ever heard someone say that? Some of us may have actually said that, our, said that ourselves. That's the opposite of mercy. Mercy is giving people better than they deserve, letting them off the hook, if you will. And by the way, it doesn't mean every time, every place, because there are some situations that may be unsafe. There are situations that do need to be reported to the authorities. But the sense of I'm not letting anybody take advantage of me when our Lord has given us some, such undeserved mercy, such undeserved grace, makes no sense for a Jesus follower. The third thing he wants is humility. He wants humility. Am I growing in my humility? Is that the fruit that's being produced? Now, biblical humility is not like our cultural humility, where it means that, that we think we're no good at something that we're actually pretty good at. We want people to recognize, but we just act humble because we want them to, you know, that, you know what I'm talking about, right? We've all seen that. No, biblical humility means that I treat others as if they're better than me. Not necessarily because they're better, but as if they're better than me. Philippians 2, verse 3 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Treating people as if they're the guest of honor, not demanding that you be treated as the guest of honor. Are we growing in our humility? And the last thing is this, are we growing in our love? Jesus said, you want to sum up the entire law? You want to sum up the Old Testament very simple? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. Oh, by the way, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the laws and the prophets. Jesus says those 613 things that the Father said to do, they can be summed up into these two things. Love God, totally sold out to God, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you remember when they asked, uh, well, who's my neighbor? 
Who did he show as a hero in the story? The Samaritan, that they, again, a very unlikely hero for them. And we would be wise to, to go back and look at those things and remember that. Four things, all of these born out of Scripture. And we don't have time to go through all of these scriptures that are there, but I encourage you during the week to take your life notes and, and go back through them. Look at them and ask yourself this question. Where am I with these four? Where am I with justice, mercy, humility, and love? But we like our watering schedule. We'd much rather say, oh, okay, I got, I got baptized as soon as I came to know Jesus. I take communion every single time I can. I get up every morning. I, I read my Bible. I, I, I tithe 10%. I'd rather, much rather live on the checklist. It's comfortable. The checklist is comfortable. It's more comfortable than having to look in the mirror and ask myself, how am I treating my spouse? How am I treating my neighbor? How am I treating, what did I return to that person that wronged me yesterday? I don't know about you, but that's much harder than trying to follow the checklist. You see, we focus on that watering schedule because it's a lot easier it's a lot easier to water well than it is to produce good fruit. Because this kind of fruit that we're talking about, it means that I have to die to self. I've got to step back and, and I've got to really let Jesus live in me and through me. And that leads to a third thing I want to share with you today. Never turn your tools into rules. Never turn your tools into rules. Now, I'm certainly not saying ignore the things God commands. But what about these other man-made kind of rules? Most of us have found things that help us. Tell me, so it's important for you to, to know your Bible. And, and, and oftentimes we'll try to take our checklist and impose it on someone else. And you don't get to decide. He decides what obedience looks like. But one of the tools that people have there, they say, well, I'm gonna, you know, just read your Bible every day. And they check off their checklist and they read their Bible, but how do they live their lives? Now, for some people, reading their Bible every day may not be how they can be spiritually fed. Some people may be dyslexic. They may have a harder time reading. Others may listen to the Bible. May, others may get more from God's Word from hearing a teacher expound God's Word. Whatever is the way that you learn, that's what you need to be doing. That's more important than some checklist that someone's trying to impose on you. Try all the tools and keep the ones that are helpful in your life. But with the other people that you're discipling, with your spouse, with your kids, with your loved ones, help them to do what works for them, not what necessarily works for you. Don't get hung up on the watering schedule. It's all about the fruit, not the list, not the fasting schedule. God says, no, that's not what it's about. My kingdom will never fit your checklist. My kingdom is completely different. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message. For more information on Chapel Mall and the ministry of Sky Valley Chapel, please visit our website at svmin.com. You can support this ministry on our website, Facebook page, or by downloading our app in the Apple or Google Play Store. Have a blessed day.